my son, and yours, each a remarkable one. My thoughts at this time will be in the form of a dialogue between me and my 14-year-old son, Michael, Michael, who resides with us in Argentina. I will talk about how important he is and how much the Lord and I love him. At the same time I address these critical thoughts to him, they would be the same as I would address to my son David, the eldest of my six children, or to their four beautiful sisters, my daughters, Michelle, Andrea, Leanne, and Licia. Fathers, would you like to join me and share the same thoughts as if directed to your sons and daughters, describing their singular importance in the eyes of our Heavenly Father? Hi, Michael. You know how much I trust you and love you, don't you? Let me try to show you who you are and how very important you are as a literal son of our Father in Heaven. President Harold B. Lee said that this understanding of who we are is of first importance, and without it, we lack the basis of a solid foundation upon which to build our lives. Firstly, Mike, we know by reasoning, seeing, and the impressions of the Spirit that the Lord is a living, perfect man. What's more, many have even seen him. For example, Adam, Enoch, the brother of Jared, Abraham, Moses, Joseph Smith, Isaac, Emer, Seth, Nephi, Isaiah, Joshua, Manoah, and his wife, Solomon, Sidney Rigdon, Alma, Moroni, Stephen, and Alma states, many, many, exceeding great, many have seen him. Now another evidence of God, speaking of the planets and orbs, the Lord says, Any man who has seen any of the least of these has seen God moving in his majesty and power. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Mike, let's visualize three scenes together. First of all, we see before us, Michael, our solar system, our sun together with the earth and eight other heavenly bodies that revolve around it. We see law, beauty, order, and perfection. Now, Michael, this next scene, we see the same solar system in its place in our galaxy, the Milky Way. We marvel at the order and arrangement. Our planets are so small they can't be detected here but our sun and its nine planets appear as one of these shining orbs and are situated about two-thirds of the way from the center, about 30,000 light-years from the middle of the Milky Way. Our planets move about the sun. The sun itself moves in a circular path at a speed of 130 miles per second, and even at that speed, Mike, a complete turnaround the Milky Way takes 200 billion years. This, our star system, has about 200 billion blazing suns, is 100,000 light-years wide. Now this next scene, Michael, we see our galaxy, the Milky Way, in space along with other galaxies. You know, Mike, it's conservatively estimated that there are about 10 billion star systems like these galaxies. Incomprehensible, I should say. We have soared out far beyond our imagination. What's a billion, Michael? 1,000 million, that's right. What's the definition now of a million, Michael? Oh, that's good. You say a million is like your mother telling you to clean up your room 274 times every day for 10 years. <laughs> How fast does light travel, Mike? That's right, 186,000 miles per second. Now hold up your left fist as if it represented the Earth. Now whirl your right index finger around it. 
If your index finger spun around it about seven times in one second, you've shown how fast light would travel around the earth. It takes about eight minutes for light to reach the sun, and just over one second for light to reach the moon from the earth. Imagine how far light could travel in one day of 86,400 seconds. Wow. Then in one year, it's beyond our ability to understand. The Lord said, And worlds without number have I created. And I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. And the Lord God spoke unto Moses, saying, The heavens, they are, they are many, and they cannot be counted unto man, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. He further said, And were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth, yea, millions of earths like this, it would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations. Isn't that exciting, Mike? From National Geographic's The Amazing Universe, we read, As the sum of knowledge grows, the astronomer continues to seek answers to man's most profound questions. What is the grand design of the universe? How was it created? How did we get here? What are we? Are we alone? End quote. We again read, It is impossible to any sensitive person to look at a star-filled sky without being stirred by thoughts of creation and eternity. A supergiant elliptical galaxy may contain more than 10 trillion stars and measure 300,000 light years across. The sheer immensity of such systems uh, suggests eternal qualities of stability and predictability. End quote. See, Mike, the scientific world sees the evidence of a supreme being. With all this massive orderly creation, are you, Michael, a single human being important? The scriptures state, When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visited him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Yes, you, Michael, are everything. You are why the heavens were created. Mike, you must realize the truth that God knows who you are, what you may become. He knows where you are and what he expects of you. You, Michael, are God's son, hence heir to all he has. His purpose and goal is to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life. You are the most important thing that exists. His most important creation. So we must be master of our beings and control ourselves and not be controlled by some habit or someone else. We must be lifters and not leaners. Reach for the stars. You, Mike, with the Lord's help, have an unlimited potential. Let's follow the perfect example of the Master or Savior. How easy it is to have hope. Hope is the strongest weapon in the spiritual arsenal of youth. The sun is our star, the only source of all light and energy. It makes life possible. One star, a remarkable one. There are about 200 billion blazing ones or suns in our star system alone and over 10 billion star systems. Yet one sun is a remarkable one. You, Michael, are like a sun, a remarkable one. Jesus the Redeemer had no office or public function, yet he shaped the world history. He wishes you and I to understand that each should be a remarkable one, for the power is in you, and you can make things happen. 
Here's a true story that relates a simple experience of a 19-year-old who became a remarkable one. He was magnified and had great powers beyond his natural abilities as the Lord acted through him. There was a young 19-year-old admirer of Joseph Smith, Philemon Merrill, who had come with other loyal followers to rescue their prophet from the hands of the sheriffs Reynolds and Wilson. While returning to Nauvoo, the company rested in a little grove of timber. One of the lawyers for the sheriff and the kidnappers boasted of his wrestling powers. He offered a wager that he could throw any man in Illinois. Stephen Markham, a bodyguard of Joseph's and a huge man, also an experienced wrestler, took up the challenge. Oh, Michael, the boaster threw Stephen, and a tantalizing shot went up from the prophet's enemies. And as the taunts continued, Joseph turned to young Merrill and said, Get up and throw that man. The boy was about to refuse, to excuse himself by saying he was not a wrestler, but a look in the prophet's eyes silenced his tongue. He rose to his feet, filled with the strength of a Samson. Philemon lifted his arms and told the lawyer to take his choice of sides. The man took the left side with his right hand under, which gave him a decided advantage. Merrill's friends protested, but young Philemon felt such confidence in the words of the prophet that it made little difference to him what advantage his antagonist took. As they began to grapple, Joseph instructed him, Philemon, when I count three, throw him. On the instant after the word of three dropped from the prophet's lips, Merrill, with the strength of a giant, threw the lawyer over his left shoulder, and he fell, striking his head upon the earth. Little wonder it's reported that awe fell over the opponents of the prophet. There were no more challenges to wrestle during the journey. End quote. Here's another example of a remarkable one, Michael. Let me quote Elmer Talmadge, a former member of the Quorum of the Twelve. What is man, or if I may add, what is Michael Brewerton, in this boundless setting of sublime splendor? I answer you, potentially now, actually to be, he or Michael is greater and grander and more precious according to the arithmetic of God than all the planets and suns of space. For him they were created. They are the handiwork of God. But man is his son. In this world, man has even been given dominion over a few things. It is his privilege to achieve supremacy over many things. End quote. With the exception of the few years when the Savior graced the earth, this, Mike, is the most exciting time to live. We have the gospel in its fullness. So many scriptures are being fulfilled, and so much history is being made. You were an important part of it. Let me express my true feelings to you about the church. I know, Michael, in a decisive, indelible manner, due to the Spirit, that Jesus is our Redeemer. He lives as does his Father. He is the living Son of a living God. President Benson and the First Presidency are his living servants through, him, through, who, through, through whom his will is given to all the world. Watch them, Mike. Listen to them. Follow them. This is the only church of Jesus Christ on the earth, Michael. And you are just as important as any human being in all history. You are of infinite worth. I love you, pal. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. What a thrilling sight to look upon this vast audience of men and boys. Now with those stirring, the stirring melody of that great number ringing in our ears, and with those words, it adds to the thrill of this occasion. I can visualize grandfathers, fathers, bishops, 
priests, deacons, and teachers seated together, some as families or quorums, also full-time missionaries, students, and new converts, all bearers of the holy priesthood of God in these vast audiences tonight. And beyond this historical Salt Lake Tabernacle are hundreds of more such assemblies of priesthood bearers anxiously awaiting the encouragement and instruction from our prophet and his noble counselors. This past summer, Clarence Neslin, Jr. took his family to Jasper National Park in Alberta, Canada. They enjoyed exploring the Columbia ice fields, jumping over crevasses in the famous Athabasca Glacier. It was an exciting experience until 11-year-old Cannon, attempting to jump across a crevasse, missed and fell into the deep chasm. He became wedged between the walls of ice. As his father looked down to where his son, some 30 feet to where his son was trapped, he was further alarmed by a river of icy water flowing beneath the crevasse. Several young men were also exploring the glacier. They heard the cries for help and came running. They had, a, they had a small rope, but soon realized that it was not strong enough. If it broke, Cannon would most assuredly fall into the rushing river of freezing water. Sister Neslin and others ran to a nearby lodge for help. The nearest park ranger camp was 75 miles away, they learned by telephone that two park rangers were near the ice fields. Located by radio, they rushed to the rescue. Time was short, decisions urgent, and silent prayers were sent heavenward. Brother Neslin tried to calm his son and soothe his fears. Hypothermia was soon setting in. Young Cannon's shirt had been pushed up as he fell. His bare skin now was pressed against the cold walls of the glacier. To keep his son from unconsciousness, the father called down to him to keep praying, to wiggle his fingers and toes, and to sing his favorite songs. Over and over, Cannon sang, I am a child of God, and he has sent me here, has given me an earthly home with parents kind and dear. All were strengthened by Cannon's faith and determination, but he was beginning to weaken. His father kept assuring him help would soon arrive and that his heavenly father would hear his prayers. The two rangers arrived. Spikes were driven into the ice. Ropes were attached to a ranger who was lowered to rescue Cannon, but the walls were too narrow for him. Their only chance was to lower a looped rope and pray he was alert enough to grasp it and had the strength to hold on as they tried to pull him out. Brother Neslin offered the most fervent prayer of his life, he said. He pleaded with the Lord to save his son's life. A feeling of assurance and calm came over me, he said. I knew he would be saved. Cannon had lapsed into unconsciousness. His father called down encouragement. 
rousing his son sufficiently that Cannon's icy fingers now were able to catch hold of the rope. Hold on with all of your heart, his father called down to him. And Cannon was carefully pulled up, inch by inch, foot by foot, all thirty feet. And when pulled to safety, he was unconscious, his fingers miraculously frozen around the rope, had to be pried loose. He was immediately wrapped in blankets and rushed to a waiting ambulance, but there was not enough warmth to raise his body temperature sufficiently. A paramedic undressed Cannon, took off his own coat and shirt, and held Cannon against his bare chest so that his body heat would radiate to the boy. Cannon slowly responded to the loving care of his rescuers. The prayers of all had been answered. Young Canon Neslin, a newly ordained deacon, is here with us tonight. He is seated right over here. Neslin, just, or Canon Neslin, just stand. Thank you. We thank our Heavenly Father that his life was spared. He was spared for a purpose. He told his father that while wedged in the ice, he felt a comforting assurance that he would be saved. He knows God loves him and that he has a special mission for him to perform in this life. Not unlike Canon Neslin, who accidentally fell into a crevasse, some of your friends and perhaps some of, even some of you have slipped into spiritual crevasses. Spiritual crevasses symbolize the temptations and pitfalls that too many of our youth are tragically encountering. Alcohol with its wine coolers and keg parties, drug tampering and dependency, or an X-rated movies and videos which often culminate in sexual immorality. On the edge of those ominous crevasses are parents and others who with fervent prayers cry for help and assistance. Like Cannon's father, they too pray that their sons or daughters will hold on to the extended lifeline. Their love and the teachings of the scriptures with the promise and assurance of the eternal blessings of the Savior's atonement are sure lifelines to safety. Youth are not the only ones who slip into crevasses. A stake president recently told me that a respected member who had held church leadership positions was enticed by some business friends to try co cocaine, the drug crack. The men were depressed. Their company was failing and they succumbed to the evil enticement of illegal drugs. He wasted $18,000 buying crack, lost his job, underwent a personality change, and finally hospitalized. Through it all, his wife stayed by him. She found a job, and they began the struggle of putting his life back together. His church friends helped him get a real estate license. His mind is seriously affected. He is still somewhat dependent upon some drugs. The hope and prayer of his family is that he will be able to hold on to the lifeline. 
When Satan was cast down to earth with his innumerable hosts, he became the father of all lies to deceive and to blind men and to lead them captive as many as would not hearken to my voice, said the Lord. One of Satan's methods is to distract and entice us that we will take our eyes off the dangerous crevasses. He has succeeded to such an extent that many no longer recognize sin as sin. Movies, television, and magazines have glorified sin into what they think is an acceptable lifestyle. Fornication, adultery, incest, serial marriages, drug abuse, violence, and double-dealing of every variety are often portrayed as normal behavior today, where people who do good are not recognized and those who do evil are not punished, so stated a Los Angeles Times writer. Assuredly, we live in a time spoken of by Isaiah when men call evil good and good evil. If any of you are walking on ice fields near the open crevasses, do you see the warning signs? Danger. Don't go near the edge. Don't trifle with evil. You will lose. We pray that you will not display the somewhat arrogant attitude of some which says, I can handle it, or everyone else does it. This is not true. A friend visiting relatives in another state for a high school graduation noticed a few students chewing tobacco. When he asked his nephew about it, the young man replied, Everybody does it. My friend's nephew did not chew tobacco, but he did believe most boys did. Even in schools where in reality only a few students may be on drugs or alcohol or smoking, non-users commonly believe that most of their fellow students are doing it. Everyone is not doing it. You don't, and you influence your friends, and others watch you, and you help set the standards. Young men, you are a royal brotherhood, not because you're better than anyone else, but because the Lord blessed you with special privileges and responsibilities. You were foreordained to come to earth at a time when the fullness of the gospel was on the earth. You were foreordained to receive his priesthood. The prophet Joseph Smith said, Every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven before the world was. You are the Lord's special resource for teaching the gospel to all his other children. You are different from other teenagers who neither have your understanding nor your responsibilities. You are one of his spirit sons, singled out with a special calling, and we know that he loves you. You have the gift of the Holy Ghost. You can discern good from evil, and with the power of the priesthood, you have the authority to represent your Heavenly Father. 
Now, my brethren, let us who have been given this most precious responsibility of the holy priesthood arise, as declared by Father Lehi, and put on the armor of righteousness to help each of us avoid the pitfalls and crevasses in life. The Lord has provided the lifetime of the precious, precious truths in the scriptures, which, if held on to, will allow us to escape both physical and spiritual danger. The word of wisdom was given that we might have clear minds and healthy bodies. The Sermon on the Mount to make us sensitive to one another's needs. And the Ten Commandments cut in stone by the finger of God, forbidding us to sin, he declared, Thou shalt not. I urge each of you to develop a personal companionship with the scriptures. President Kimball read the Bible when he was 14 years old, all 66 books and the 1,519 pages. If I could do it by coal oil light, he said, you can do it by electric light. He was a very special teacher for all of us. He didn't have a car or a bicycle, but he did have nine cows to milk every morning and night. And he said, I thought, what a waste of time to sit on a three-legged stool. Maybe there is something else I could do while I'm milking. He placed a, a copy of the Articles of Faith on the ground beside him and went through them over and over until he memorized them. Then he repeated the Ten Commandments over and over until he learned them. He memorized important scriptures that would help him on his mission, all while he milked the cows. He didn't have time to waste. He had things to do with his life. It would be a wonderful thing for you young men to use your time wisely by learning of God's ways. President Ezra Taft Benson has challenged each of us to read the Book of Mormon, the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. We understand thousands of you young men are now reading the Book of Mormon and doing it. As the angel Moroni sealed up the gold plates, he was inspired to promise future generations, that is us, that on certain conditions God will manifest the truth of those records by the power of the Holy Ghost and—now listen carefully—by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. Imagine such a promise. If you desire with a sincere heart, with a faith in Christ, you can understand all things. Jeffrey Holland, president of the Brigham Young University, while working on his Ph.D. at a prominent Eastern American university, got to know well one of the reference librarians who had helped him with some research. One day he said, Eileen, I need to know how many books we have in the university library which claim to have been delivered by an angel. As you can imagine, the librarian gave him a peculiar look and said, I don't know of any books that have been delivered by angels, swords maybe, or chariots, but I don't know of any books. 
Well, just run a check for me, would you? It may take a little doing, but I really would like to know. The librarian dutifully did some checking of the nine million books in the library. For several days, she had nothing to report. But then one day, she smilingly said, Mr. Holland, I have a book for you. I, f I have found one which, it is claimed, claimed was delivered by an angel, and she held up a paperback copy of the Book of Mormon. Brother Holland responded, I'm told you can get them for a dollar. My goodness, she declared, an angel's book for a dollar? <laughs> you would think angels would charge more. But then again, she said, where would they spend it? <laughs> Think of it, my dear young friends. One book has been delivered by an angel, and it teaches of your eternal salvation. And each of you can own a true copy. May the Lord bless each of you with your life's opportunities. Put your trust in Him to avoid the destroying crevasses of sin and evil. Hold on to the lifeline of the gospel. You can make correct choices. The ones you know in your heart will be for your best good. We love you and testify of the truthfulness of the gospel of Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Brother Worthland, we welcome you as a member of the Council of the Twelve. We have long admired and loved you as we did your <clears throat> illustrious father, who was the presiding bishop of the Church. In ancient times, the test of the purity of gold was performed with a smooth black silicious stone called a touchstone. When rubbed across the touchstone, the gold produced a streak or a mark on its surface. The goldsmith matched this mark to a color on his chart of graded colors. The mark was redder as the amount of copper or alloy increased or yellower as the percentage of gold increased. This process showed quite accurately the purity of the gold. The touchstone method of testing the purity of gold was quick and was satisfactory for most practical purposes. But the goldsmith, who still questioned the purity, completed a more accurate test by 
using a process that involved fire. I suggest to you that the Lord has prepared a touchstone for you and me, an outward measurement of inward discipleship that marks our faithfulness and will survive the fires yet to come. On one occasion, while Jesus was teaching the people, a certain lawyer approached him and posed this question, Master, what shall I do to inherit an eternal life? Jesus, the master teacher, replied to the man who obviously was well-versed in the law with a counter-question. What is written in the law? How readest thou? The man replied with resolute summary the two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. With approval, Christ responded, This do, and thou shalt live. Eternal life, God's life, the life we are seeking, is rooted in two commandments. The scriptures say that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love God and love your neighbor. The two work together. They are inseparable. In the highest sense, they may be considered as synonymous, and they are commandments that each of us can live. The answer of Jesus to the lawyer might be considered as the Lord's touchstone. He said on another occasion, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. He will measure our devotion to him by how we love and serve our fellow man. What kind of a mark are we leaving on the Lord's touchstone? Are we truly good neighbors? Does the test show us to be 24 karat gold, or can the trace of fool's gold be detected? As if excusing himself for asking such a simple question of the Master, The lawyer sought to justify himself by further inquiring, And who is my neighbor? 
We all ought to be eternally grateful for that question. For in the Savior's <clears throat> reply came one of his richest, richest and most appreciated parables, one that each of us has read and heard repeated over and over again. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds pouring in oil and wine, and setting him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him. And whenever and whatever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Then Jesus asked of the lawyer, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? There the Master holds out the touchstone of Christianity. He asks that our mark be measured on it. Both priest and the Levite in Christ's parable should have remembered the requirements of the law. Thou shalt not see thy brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way, and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt surely help him and lift them up again. And if an ox, how much more should one be willing to help a brother in need? But as Elder James E. Talmage wrote, excuses not to do so are easy to find. They spring up as readily and as plentifully as weeds by the wayside. The Samaritan gave us an example of pure Christian love. He had compassion. 
He went to the man that had been injured by the thieves and bound up his wounds. He took him to an inn, cared for him, paid his expenses, and offered more if needed for his care. This is a story of the love of a neighbor for his neighbor. In an old axiom, it is stated that a man all wrapped up in himself makes a small bundle. Love has a certain way of making small bundles large. The key is to love our neighbor, including the neighbor that is difficult to love. We need to remember that though we make our friends, God has made our neighbors everywhere. Love should have no boundary. We should have no narrow loyalties. Christ said, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Joseph Smith wrote a letter to the saints published in The Messenger and Advocate on the subject of loving one another to be justified before God. He wrote, Dear brethren, it is the duty which every saint ought to, re- ought to render to his brethren freely, to always love them and to ever succor them. To be justified before God, we must love one another. We must overcome evil. We must visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction. And we must keep ourselves unspotted from the world. For such virtues flow freely from the great fountain of pure religion. Strengthening our faith by adding every good quality that adorns the children of the blessed Jesus, we pray in the season of prayer. We can love our neighbors ourselves and be faithful in tribulation, knowing that the reward of such is greater in the kingdom of heaven. What a consolation! What a joy! Let me live the life of the righteous, and let my reward be like this. These two virtues, love and service, are required of us if we are to be good neighbors and find peace in our lives. Surely they were in the heart of Elder Willard Richards 
While in the Carthage jail on the afternoon of the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram, the jailer suggested that they would be safer in the cells. Joseph turned to Elder Richards and asked, If we go into the cell, will you go with us? Elder Richards' reply was one of love. Brother Joseph, you did not ask me to cross the river with you. You did not ask me to come to Carthage. You did not ask me to come to jail with you. Do you think I would forsake you now? But I will tell you what I will do. If you were condemned to be hung for treason, I will be hung in your stead, and you shall go free. It must have been with considerable emotion and feeling that Joseph replied, But you cannot. To which Brother Richards firmly answered, I will. Brother Richards' test was perhaps greater than most of us will face. The test of fire, rather than of the touchstone. But if we were asked to do so, could we lay down our lives for our families, our friends, our neighbors? The touchstone of compassion is a, me- is a measure of our discipleship. It is a measure of our love for God and for one another. Will we leave a mark of pure gold or, like the priest and the Levi, pass, pass by on the other side? May the Lord bless us in our quest to be true disciples and good neighbors. I pray that each of us may be good Samaritans. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. It's nice to have someone sitting on my right. We'll certainly welcome. Joseph to the Quorum of the Twelve. The prophet Joseph Smith was often asked to inquire of the Lord to learn what people, what people should do. And in the case of John Whitmer, the Lord said, And now, behold, I say unto you that the thing which will be of the most worth unto you will be to, to declare repentance unto this people that you may bring souls unto me, that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my Father. Jesus repeatedly called upon his disciples to preach the gospel to every living soul. Those who would believe were to be baptized in his name and enter into his church. After the Savior's 40-day fast and the temptation by Satan, 
Matthew records, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. With loving patience, Jesus taught his disciples, and especially his twelve apostles, to preach the kingdom of God. After the three years of his ministry, crowned by the Atonement, which included his glorious resurrection, Jesus gathered his eleven disciples in Galilee. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. These instructions were clear. When Peter, the chief apostle, finally understood them, he became a powerful leader. For example, on the day of Pentecost, he stood with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, this Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. When Jesus visited this continent, Nephi went forth and bowed himself before the Lord. And the Lord commanded him that he should arise. And he arose and stood before him. And the Lord said unto him, I give unto you power that ye shall baptize this people when I am again ascended into heaven. And again the Lord called others and said unto them likewise, and he gave unto them power to baptize. To every people through all ages his message remains the same. Preach the gospel of the kingdom. The First Presidency has said that one of the threefold missions of the Church is to proclaim the gospel. If we accept this part of the mission, we should be willing to center our efforts on bringing souls unto the Lord on conditions of repentance. Two years ago I spoke on this subject, and I continue to feel an urgent need that we must constantly remind and help each other in our responsibilities to share the message of the Restoration with others. We often hear members say, I know I should share the gospel, 
but I don't know how to do it. Perhaps the following success stories that have come to me may help you. These experiences resulted when members of the Church exercised their faith and followed some simple steps, such as setting a date to have someone prepared to be taught by the missionaries. From England, in my calling as branch president, I decided one day to invite our whole community to join us in fasting for the people of Ethiopia. I had 4,000 leaflets produced, which we distributed to homes in the area. One of the leaflets was delivered to a non-member, and his wife felt impressed to take part. It was the name of the Church on the leaflet which first impressed them. The husband came to the chapel with the fast offering as invited, and I met him there. I gave him a tour of our small building shared my testimony with him, and invited him to come to Church Sunday. He came. I introduced him to our missionaries who arranged to call on the home. I was privileged to join the missionaries on several joint teaching visits and develop a close relationship with the family. On the evening of March 2nd, the night before the date I had set, I baptized the wife. Her husband will follow soon and their daughter. We have now met other families through this one who are being taught. As for my wife and me, we have set another date. From Oregon, I set a date just under two months and proceeded to ask for divine guidance in all of my daily prayers and to fast for strength not to lose sight of my goal. My date came and went, and with a few pangs of guilt, However, I received a message one week later that an old friend of mine that I had gone to school with wanted me to call. I gave him a call and invited him over that night. My friend went with me to pick up some pizza. As we drove into town, I told him that I was a member of the LDS Church. He was interested, so I related some of the many blessings I had received. I then asked him to attend church with me that next Sunday, which he did. From the beginning, he accepted it all. We invited him to be baptized. He said he didn't want to be rushed into anything. At this time, I was impressed to read to him from the Book of Mormon, using the words of Alma that Alma used at the waters of Mormon. As I read the verses to him, I paused at each question that Alma asked and asked him if he were willing to do it also, and he said yes to all of it. Then I read him verse 10 and asked him, What have you against being baptized? He looked at me and said, You're right. I have nothing to wait for. So the date was set, and I baptized and confirmed him a member of the Church. From Florida, as I knelt in prayer, I expressed a sincere desire to share the gospel with someone and asked my Heavenly Father to please send someone to me. The very next morning, there was a knock on my door, and it was a neighbor wanting to borrow a pan. Although she had lived by us for some time, we had not had much contact. Two days later, both she and her husband came over to visit with us. 
During our conversation, she mentioned that they had been looking for a church. I told her how my husband and I were once in that very same position and how our church filled that special need we had. We invited them to church that Sunday, and they eagerly accepted. Afterwards, we asked them if they would be interested in learning more by having the missionary lessons in our home. They told us that, indeed, they would be interested. On Christmas Day, my husband baptized and confirmed them members of the Church. They have grown so strong and set a shining example to all. They are looking forward to the day when they and their new baby girl can be sealed in the temple for all time and eternity. Then from far off Buenos Aires, in our family prayers, we began to include the names of non-members who had not yet joined the Church. My children prayed for them. Our prayers were different. We were changing our attitude toward missionary work from waiting for opportunities to share the gospel to asking the Lord to prepare specific people by names to receive the lessons. We have seen one person come into the Church who is fully active. Three other families, chosen with the Lord's help, have received the third discussion. All have been to Church at least twice. All have been in our home for friendshiping and encouragement. They are receiving the opportunity to accept or reject the gospel message. My brothers and sisters, from the experiences of these and many more like them, we learn that we can give the saving ordinances of the gospel to others when we allow the Lord to help us with someone we know and love. Sharing our feelings about God and religion should be easy since most Latter-day Saints are loving, sharing, and trusting people. With a relationship of trust established and with help from the Lord, we generally can feel comfortable moving beyond the realm of friendship and can invite our friends to learn more about the Church. There are many ways to share the gospel. I know that these four simple steps will help you in your effort to find and to share the gospel with others because many members have used them and have had successful missionary experiences. Step 1. Prayerfully set a date by which you will have someone prepared to hear the gospel. We must start somewhere, and this simple act of faith on our part will serve to motivate us. Do not worry if you do not have someone already in mind. Let the Lord help you. Step 2. Prayerfully choose a friend or someone you already know, someone with whom you have already discussed the gospel or given a Book of Mormon or other Church literature or taken to Church. Step 3. Share your date and your plans with your bishopric, ward mission leader, and the full-time missionaries. They will help you. The most important is step four. With the help of the Spirit, invite your non-member friend to hear the missionary discussions. This step, extending an invitation to hear the gospel, requires the most faith. Faith to do as you are prompted by the Holy Ghost. In talking of faith and saving souls, you should understand that when the Spirit is present, 
People are not offended when you share your feelings about the gospel. By prayerfully following these steps, you are putting a plan into effect that translates your faith into action. There are many good ways that you can use to prepare someone to feel the Spirit. A few examples are bear your testimony, pray together, read the scriptures, give a book of Mormon, share a spiritual experience, take your friend to church, present a gospel film or a tape, and discuss the gospel. Please note that all of these same steps and principles will also work when we use them to invite the inactive member of the Church to come back into full activity. In the 50th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we are assured that he that receiveth the word by the Spirit of truth receiveth it as it is preached by the Spirit of truth. Wherefore, he that preacheth and he that receiveth understand one another and both are edified and rejoice together. The key to success in bringing souls unto Christ is to act at a time when you feel the Spirit and you sense that your friend does also. Remember, brothers and sisters, through our trust in the Lord, faith, and good works, we can bring many souls unto the Lord. We can enjoy the blessings of living with them in the kingdom of our Father. Shortly after the death of Sister LeGrand Richards, I was assigned to be Elder Richards' junior companion to assist him in creating the Atlanta, Georgia stake. As we were flying towards his beloved Southern States mission, he said to me, Brother Ballard, I'm not afraid to die. The only thing that I worry about is, will I be able to find Mommy over there? I was impressed to say to Elder Richards that in his case that could be a real problem. Immediately I had his full attention. <laughs> he looked me directly in the eye and said, What do you mean by that? With my emotions near the surface, I answered this great missionary, Elder Richards, when you die, so many people there will be anxious to greet you because you introduced the gospel to them that you might have difficulty finding mommy in the crowd. His response was, Oh, you don't mean that. <laughs> we might ask ourselves the question, Who will be there to greet us? Oh, that I could have the power to touch your hearts that you would have the faith to take the simple steps that will bring the light of the gospel to many more of our Father's children. The more I'm involved in this work, the more I realize that Satan would have you and me believe that we cannot succeed in sharing the gospel. He lies to us. In fact, he is the father of all lies. Do not listen to him. Listen to the prompting of the Holy Ghost and then act in faith in sharing the gospel. I testify to you, my brothers and sisters, that I know that the Lord lives. And I know that when we are willing to seek His help and guidance, when we will trust in Him completely, 
he will bless us to understand what to do and how to proceed in the wonderful work of sharing this glorious message with others. We do appreciate all that you have done in the past. The leaders of the Church have great faith that united together the members and the missionaries of this Church can do much more in the future to build the kingdom of God. May the Lord bless us all with increased faith to move this work forward. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.